Let's turn to the Lord once again in prayer and ask for his help this morning. Please bow with me. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning for help. We come to you this morning in need of of hope. We come this morning as those who, who need our eyes to be fixed on Christ, who need to be stirred up by way of reminder of the promises found in Jesus. And so we ask for your help this morning, Lord. We ask you to humble us this morning to receive your truth and by the power of your Holy Spirit that you transform us and shape us this morning to look more like Jesus, to love more like him. Lord, I thank you for the honor and privilege it is to stand here this morning and to preach the gospel, to preach about your, your risen son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would help me to preach faithfully, to clearly preach, to preach joyfully that your son, Jesus, would be exalted, that we would all together stand in awe of him, for he is worthy. We ask that in his name. Amen. 86 years. For the last 86 years, Christians have gathered right here at Oakhurst Baptist Church to proclaim that Christ is risen from the dead. 86 years of Easter Sunday morning. And that's a message that we proclaim every Sunday morning. Sunday morning is the morning that Jesus got up from the dead. That's why we're meeting on Sunday morning. The tomb was empty on that Sunday morning long ago. And in those 86 years, if you do the math, it's over 4,400 Sunday morning sermons preached here in this church pointing to the risen Lord Jesus. But, but not just this church. I mean, consider how many churches in this city, in this metro region, are preaching Christ risen from the dead this morning? How many churches across the state of North Carolina are preaching the same message you'll hear this morning? Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Across the country, in all 50 states. But this is not an American gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel came here, from Jerusalem, outward, here. You see, this is a gospel preached. Think about how many churches across the globe on every inhabitable continent. I saw a, a preacher friend this morning in Moscow, Russia, that you all have met, Yevgeny Batmutsky, tweeting out this morning about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think about how many sermons are preached this morning across the globe about the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, the good news of Jesus Christ has gone out to the ends of the earth. The fact that we're meeting here this morning is evidence to that fact. This gospel preached all over the globe today, but it wasn't always that way. 2,000 years ago, in one city, in the city of Jerusalem, a sermon was preached during the Jewish feast of Pentecost by one of Jesus' disciples, the Apostle Peter. That sermon, it took place just 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, most likely there on the temple grounds in Jerusalem, that would have been a, a space large enough to hold the crowd of over 3,000 people who were gathered to hear Peter preach good news of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He was preaching to pilgrims who came into that city for that feast, but also citizens of Jerusalem that were gathered there that morning. And this morning, we're going to look at that sermon. Referred to often as the first Christian sermon. 
We find that in Acts chapter 2. If you want to turn there with me this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. If you want to use that pew Bible in front of you, the best way to stay engaged in the sermon is to open up a copy of God's Word and to follow along with what I'll share this morning. You can turn to page 910 in the pew Bible, page 910, you'll find Acts chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 22 this morning and go through verse 32 and just look at a portion of Peter's sermon. Now, Acts is a book of proclamation, proclaiming Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead, proclaiming his ascension up to heaven and his promise to return back to earth one day. Jesus rose from the dead and he remained on earth for a period of 40 days. And he appeared to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, and he personally picked them as apostles and trained them to go and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He ascended back up to heaven in Acts chapter 1 with the promise that he would one day descend and return to earth to usher in the end of time. Now, the full title often given to the book of Acts, you can look there and look in your copy of the Bible, it may say, The Acts of the Apostles. And this chapter records a, a first major act, a starting point, really, of the Acts of the Apostles. And we see Peter's sermon here now. Now, Luke, he wrote this book to go along with the Gospel of Luke. In fact, I'll, I'll reference a little bit later some passages from Luke. So you could take the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles together. Now, the day that this sermon was delivered, one of the most important days in human history took place. God sent His Holy Spirit down to dwell inside of His people. He poured out His Spirit on His people, just like the prophet Joel looked forward to. In Joel chapter 2 and Acts 2, we see that happening. So Jesus went back up, Acts 1, Spirit came down, Acts 2. And Peter's sermon explains to them what just happened and why that just happened. The Holy Spirit being given to those who put their faith in Jesus, this next act of God that followed the crucifixion and the resurrection was the giving of the Holy Spirit. So in this sermon where Peter's trying to explain to them what happened, you see these men from many nations, they're speaking in tongues, speaking in discernible languages, and they're wondering what just happened. Uh, some were saying and mocking them, saying that they must be drunk. And Peter says it's nine in the morning, they're not drunk. The Holy Spirit has come down, and he's pointing to Jesus' death and his resurrection to explain why all of this happened. We're going to trace through a portion of this sermon to this morning, and the outline really this morning, let me give you the, the main point first. The main point of this sermon is this. It was always God's plan to send Jesus to die and rise again. It was always God's plan to send Jesus to die and rise again. That's what Peter wanted that crowd in Jerusalem to know. It's what we need to know today. And as we go through this passage, there's three different parts I want us to see. The first part, in verse 22, an extraordinary man. An extraordinary man. Christian sermons point to Jesus, who He is and what He's done. So the sermons we preach this morning aren't meant to just merely inform you or merely to help you. I hope they're informative. I hope they're helpful. But Christian sermons, first and foremost, 
point us to what God's done in Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's done. And that's what we see in this first Christian sermon in Acts chapter 2. Now, Peter answers the question of what was happening there with the Holy Spirit being poured out by teaching them about Jesus. We see from his words in verse 22 that, that Jesus was a man, but he was no ordinary man. Luke says, he was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Throughout Luke's gospel, he recorded many mighty works and, and, and wonders and signs that Jesus performed. If you go back and read through the gospel of Luke, you'll see in Luke chapter 7 that Jesus brought a widow's dead son back from the dead. Brought him back from the dead. In Luke 8, he does it again with Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue. He brought his daughter back from the dead. What kind of man reverses the curse of death? Only God can do that. Truly, he must be God. Jesus is the Son of God. That's really the point that the gospel hammers home again and again and again. Also in Luke 8, we read that Jesus calmed a storm by the power of his own words. Even the wind and the waves obey him. Well, what kind of man can rule creation by the power of his word? Only God does that. Truly, Jesus must be the Son of God. Keep reading. Miracles Jesus performed. Another one in Luke 17. Jesus cleaned ten lepers. Nobody touched lepers. They were cast out, put away from the city. If you got near them, you would catch that leprosy, a horrible skin disease. Well, when Jesus not only touched these lepers, not only did he remain clean, and undefiled, but they became clean. Well, who can do that? Who, who rules over sickness and disease and, and death? Only God can reverse such a curse. This must be the Son of God, truly man and, and truly God, Jesus, the Son of God. Now, this crowd that Peter was preaching to in Jerusalem, they were familiar with Jesus. He wasn't informing them about someone they had never heard of. Again, Jesus had performed these mighty acts in their midst, in their land. That's why Peter said that Jesus was attested to you by God. But merely being familiar with Jesus was not enough. They needed to put their faith in Jesus. And as Peter preached, he sought to persuade them that Jesus is the Messiah, the one in whom salvation and forgiveness of sins is found, the only way to God the Father, the only way to be forgiven of your sins, the only way to heaven through Jesus Christ. And that's what every Christian sermon is about, pointing people to the truth of Jesus Christ the Son of God, and persuading, reasoning from the Scriptures to persuade those to plead to put their faith in Jesus. Here on Sunday morning, I'm not merely trying to inform our church members about God's Word. I hope that, that God's Word, what I preach, that that's informative and helpful. But the goal is persuasion, to persuade us to keep trusting and believing in Jesus, to persuade us to live a life that honors God, that together we would worship Him and, and walk and leave this place worshiping Him. Being familiar with Jesus, it wasn't enough for them, and it's not enough for you here this morning. 
And if you're one of our guests this, this morning, I wonder, are you merely familiar with Jesus or have you put your faith in him? There's a lot of people in the city familiar with Jesus. A lot of people in the city who bought Easter outfits for today. A lot of brunch reservations that have been booked. People right now out enjoying that brunch. Lots of people familiar with this is Easter. But have you put your faith in what Easter points to? Jesus risen from the dead. You know, if you're here and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, I would encourage you, uh, read the Bible. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible right there in the pew rack. Take it home with you. That's our gift to you. And, and read through the Gospel of Luke. And what Peter just said, all these signs and works and wonders and miracles, read through Luke and, and read about these wonders and, and miracles. And the point of familiarizing yourself more with Jesus, read with the aim to believe in Him to trust in Him, to seek the holy God who created you, who you've sinned against, who you need to be forgiven by. And the only way to be forgiven, to trust in Jesus, God's provision for your sins to be forgiven. While His life attested to Him being the Son of God, Jesus, He came to, to die. He willingly laid His life down to die on the cross. And that's what we see Peter proclaiming next in verse 23, the second part of our sermon, we see an extraordinary death. Now, there's nothing extraordinary about death itself. Death is a reality. Everyone who is born will die. Unless Jesus returns first, everyone here will die one day. There's nothing extraordinary about that. that that's common. And in the time of Jesus, Roman crucifixion, that wasn't extraordinary either. It was a brutal form of, of, of public punishment meant to bring people in line with the Roman Empire. There had been others before Jesus even who had claimed to be the Messiah, who were trying to lead uprisings against Rome, who themselves were crucified on the cross. So this crowd needed to know what was extraordinary about the death of Jesus Christ. What was different? Again, the Jewish audience that Peter was preaching to, they were aware of the death of Jesus. It happened just 50 days prior right there in that city. That, that news was still fresh. Peter wanted them to know this death of Jesus, it was no ordinary death. Look at verse 23. The sermon continues, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Who killed Jesus? Was it the, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin? Was it the people of Jerusalem? Was it King Herod? Was it the Roman soldiers and, and Pontius Pilate? Uh, was Judas Iscariot, his friend, his disciple who betrayed him, was, was he responsible? Well, yes. We'll get to that in a moment. Peter says yes, but while the death of Jesus on the cross came about through the hands of lawless men, do not miss this reality. God was at work the whole time. Peter wants them to know there was something extraordinary about his death. They knew the story of how Jesus got handed over. They knew that Judas sold him out. They knew what Herod was doing. They knew Pontius Pilate. Some of them likely would have been there in the crowd that day shouting, crucify him and choosing Barabbas instead of Jesus to be 
released. Peter wants them to know that wasn't the only thing that was going on that day. His words here in verse 23, they give us two different perspectives on the death of Jesus, one from God and one from man. So a vertical perspective, what God was doing, and then horizontal, what was going on with the people there in Jerusalem and the nation of Israel and the death of Jesus. First, he mentions the vertical perspective, what what God was doing. Look there in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus dying on the cross was God's plan. It happened according to his foreknowledge. Now, sometimes people hear that word foreknowledge and they think, oh, well, that must mean that, that God just kind of looked ahead and he knew the future and what was going to happen, so he adjusted his plan. Well, that's not what the word foreknowledge means. Certainly, God knows the future. Certainly, he's all-knowing and knows everything that's going to happen. But think about foreknowledge meaning foreordained, a, a predetermined plan. So, so Jesus dying on the cross wasn't plan B. It was God's plan in eternity past. It's always been the plan. Now, the Jewish people, they were not expecting a Messiah who would get killed. Dying on a Roman cross does not appear to be a a victory to them. I mean, Jesus was treated as a public criminal, suffering a public death in their minds. How was that a win? Really, that's the one that we've been waiting for? He was humiliated. He was mocked. He was beaten. That doesn't look like victory at all. But Peter shows them this was God's plan, to send Jesus to suffer and to die. Jesus willingly laid his life down according to God's divine plan for salvation. Now, while Peter highlights God's plan and the death of Jesus, he still holds people responsible. He says there in verse 23, look, it continues on, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. While God had a divine plan to accomplish his will, Jesus was delivered over by the hands of lawless men. Through the wicked acts of the Jewish leaders, conspiring with Judas Iscariot, with the help of the Romans, in concert With the shouts of demand from the crowds there in Jerusalem, Jesus was delivered over to be killed. And when Peter states, you crucified and killed, he was implying that the whole nation of Israel was responsible as they rejected Jesus and handed him over to the Romans to be crucified. Now, at first, you may find that to be difficult to understand. How can these two perspectives sit side by side? I mean, come on, like one of them has to be responsible. How are they both responsible that, that God was at work and at the same time lawless men were at work? It might be hard to consider that it was God's predetermined plan for Jesus to come and die on the cross and that sinful people were still responsible for his death. But these two perspectives do not contradict one another. They sit side by side in the Scriptures. And I think, Christians, that can bring us hope. It can bring us joy that our God reigns. We see a lot of evil in this world. 
But it's not that God is ever taken by surprise by that. He reigns. He's always at work. He never sleeps nor slumbers. He's always at work for his own glory and for the good of his people. We may not always understand his ways, what's happening, why he allows things to happen. We might often be overwhelmed by the evil that we see here on earth. But we can have hope that what people mean for evil, God is always at work for good. There's no such thing as a bad day in the life of a Christian. There's hard days. There are trials. There are difficulties. We struggle with our own sin, and we experience the effects of sin around us. But those days are not bad because we know our good God is at work, working for His glory, working for our good. And so we have hard days, difficult days. But in those days, we can rejoice. God is at work. He was at work on the most terrible day. The day that that Jesus was being humiliated on the cross. At the same day, time, we even said on Friday night, that was a good day. It's a terrible day. The one worthy of glory and worship and honor and and respect and who deserved to be worshipped and received was instead rejected. At the same time, that was good because God was working for us and for our salvation. Jesus' suffering and His death were not by accident. It was all according to God's plan. What that means, it was in love that God sent Jesus. One of the most familiar Bible verses, think about this, John 3.16. We're all too familiar with that passage. Sometimes we skip over the glorious truth that should strengthen our faith. God sent Jesus into the world because He loves us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Brother and sister in Christ, don't just be familiar with that passage. May it strengthen your faith that God sent Jesus because He loves us, and He'll continue to demonstrate and show His love to His people. His plan of love, it prevailed in the midst of an evil world. Well, I've heard it said, don't think of Good Friday as defeat, and Easter Sunday as victory. The Gospels present Friday rather as victory and Sunday as vindication. The last part we see here in verses 24 through 32, an extraordinary resurrection, an extraordinary resurrection. Let me read through all of verses 24 through 32 for us. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. When it came to the tomb that Jesus was buried in, nobody expected no 
body. The women went there on the first morning expecting a body. Nobody expected to show up and that there would be no body. Jewish people believed in resurrection. But they understood the resurrection to be something that would happen at the end of time with all of humanity. What Peter is representing to them is an extraordinary resurrection, one that they were not expecting, the resurrection of one individual, of Jesus, as a moment within history. There's still be plenty of time after that. That Jesus, the first, the first fruits, would guarantee many more to come, those who would believe in His name. And we are here this morning in a Christian church on Sunday morning because the death of Jesus is not the end of the story. Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday morning. We gather on Sunday morning. And we rejoice this morning that just as it was God's plan to deliver Jesus over to death, it was God's plan to raise him from the dead. So far in this section of Peter's sermon, we've seen one verse on the life of Jesus. That's verse 22. One verse on his death. That's verse 23. And here we have nine verses on the resurrection of Jesus. Verses 24 through 32, nine verses on the resurrection of Jesus. Now, this crowd in Jerusalem, they knew that the tomb of Jesus was empty. Again, this was still fresh news. You don't kind of move on from that news cycle. Well, what happened with the body of, of Jesus? Now, there were rumors going around. You can read in Matthew chapter 28, verse, 13, verse 12 through 14, that the Roman guards were paid by the Jewish leaders to say that the body of Jesus was, was stolen, somehow stolen from behind a Roman guard and a, a tomb that was made secured behind a stone. But Peter points to the truth. They need to know the truth about the empty tomb. And he reasoned with them first from the Scriptures and then from his own eyewitness account that the tomb of Jesus was empty because Jesus rose from the dead. Now, just as Jesus had told his disciples on several occasions before his death, on the third day after he died and was buried, God raised him from the dead. All the mighty signs and wonders performed in their midst, the resurrection was the ultimate mighty work of God that attested to Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah. Starting in verse 24, we see here, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That that phrase, pangs of death, it, it pictures the agony of labor pains. Labor pains that give way eventually to a baby being delivered. That that picture given, God loosened the pangs of death and delivered His Son, Jesus, from death, bringing forth Jesus from the dead. It was not possible for Jesus to remain dead. Death could not hold Him. No one beats death. Novant, Atrium, they cannot figure it out. Medical history, all the science and technology we have, they have not figured it out. They've figured out ways to help us, to treat disease and things like that, and and God's sovereignty to help extend our lives in in those ways. There's wonderful medical advancements that will help us uh, beat cancer, the help of the Lord. At the same time, there'll never be a cure for death. Everyone who's born dies. 
But Jesus was the first one to resurrect from the dead. Now, resurrection doesn't merely mean coming back to life because we see that Jesus brought others back from the dead. But you know what happened to them? They went on to die again. Lazarus, risen from the dead by Jesus, and he went on to have a funeral day. Eventually, he succumbed to other causes down the road. Jesus rose bodily, a physical resurrection from the dead to never die again. Death could not hold him. It was not possible. Yes, Jesus came to die, but that was never going to be the end. His plan was always to die and to rise again. And Peter shows that is what the Old Testament Scriptures predicted. In verses 25 to 28, Peter quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. Again, this psalm would have been something that audience was familiar with. But before hearing this sermon from Peter, they would not have associated Jesus with Psalm 16. And Peter's connecting it there. He first goes to the Word of God to say, this is what Psalm 16 is about, the resurrection of Jesus. Here in the first Christian sermon, Peter teaches from the Old Testament that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, showing that his teaching as an apostle was in line with what the Old Testament scriptures said. Look at how Peter introduces this psalm, verse 25, for David says concerning him, meaning concerning Jesus. Psalm 16, about resurrection, he was talking about Jesus. He quotes verses 8 through 11 as pointing to the resurrection of, of Jesus. And in Psalm 16, you can see there, King David anticipates a resurrection that the Holy One would not see corruption, verse 27, wouldn't see decay. Verse 27 at the beginning, you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Well, is David speaking about himself there? Well, in Acts chapter 2, verses 29 through 31, Peter teaches, no, he can say with confidence that that psalm is not ultimately about David. It can't possibly refer to David. David died. His soul went to the place of the dead. His body saw corruption, and David remained dead. Peter reasons in verse 29, David died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. David's physical body never left that tomb. When Peter was preaching, he was saying, hey, David's tomb was there on the south side of Jerusalem. They knew exactly where David was buried. That's why Peter said, this psalm cannot ultimately be about David. Since David died, he must be speaking about one of his descendants who would come long after him and rule over the people of God. And that's what Peter points to in verse 30. David was not ultimately speaking about himself. David spoke as a prophet. God swore an oath to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God's promise to David, the Davidic covenant. God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. The only way that a descendant of David could sit on his throne and rule God's people forever was through resurrection. What king, who was a descendant of David, who would die and be buried, yet his body would not see decay, he would get out of the tomb and rule forever? Psalm 16 points to Jesus. 
The life of King David served as a type, anticipating and looking forward to a, a greater king that was yet to come. In other words, all of Scripture bears witness to Jesus. David as a prophet was able to foresee the resurrection of Christ. Look at what he predicted in verse 27. You will not abandon my soul to Hades. Peter says in verse 31, look at Jesus. Jesus was not abandoned to Hades. What David predicted again there in verse 27, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Peter says down in verse 31, hey, that's about Jesus. Nor did his flesh see corruption. He's saying compare the tomb of David to the tomb of of Jesus. The tomb of Jesus, not with us to this day, because there is no tomb that could hold him for longer than three days. The body of Jesus was in the tomb on Friday, physically in the tomb on Saturday, but then came Sunday morning, and he was not there. The tomb, empty. Followers of Jesus have never had a grave to visit. On that Sunday morning, the the women, they went to visit Jesus. He wasn't there. There was no grave to visit. Now, now visiting graves is something common in other religions, but not in Christianity. Muslims can visit the tomb of Muhammad. His remains are there in the city of Medina. The remains of Buddha are purported to be all over the place in Buddhist monasteries across the world. Just east of Los Angeles, there's one claiming to have some of his teeth. The the tomb of Confucius, his followers can visit that in the Shandong province of China. Believe in evolution, your next trip to London, you can go to Westminster Abbey and you can see the tomb of Charles Darwin. But if you consider that followers of Jesus, we have no grave to visit. Indeed, because there is no tomb that holds the body of Jesus, he has followers. That's why he has followers, because there is no tomb to visit. You see, what what, what Christians proclaim and celebrate is that Jesus is risen from the dead, the greatest moment in human history. And Peter was an eyewitness to that moment. Peter closes out his words on Psalm 16 by sharing what he himself was an eyewitness to. So first, the testimony of Scripture, and then the testimony of Peter, who would go on to write New Testament Scripture. He's saying, I saw all of this with my own eyes. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. The Christian faith is based on facts, real historical facts about Jesus. We don't talk about the resurrection merely because it seems inspiring or because it was some sort of myth that was handed down to us. We proclaim Jesus risen from the dead as historical fact, one attested to by eyewitnesses. In in another New Testament book, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul, he lists off there, he rattles off uh, six different groups of eyewitnesses. That's certainly not exhaustive. But you know who the first one he mentions in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5? First eyewitness? Peter. First eyewitness, the one preaching the sermon, Acts 2. He, he rattles off Peter. The 12 apostles were eyewitnesses. A group of 500. 500 people at one time aren't hallucinating. That's not how hallucination works. 500 people don't see the exact same thing if they're hallucinating or misrecognizing something. James was another witness he rolls off. The apostle, all of the apostles, and then Paul himself. In other words, Peter, the one preaching this sermon, 
is one of hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. The testimony of Scripture, lining up with Peter's own eyewitness, Jesus is alive. Christianity is not a blind faith. We are a come and see religion. That's the way it's always been. Come and and see. We are witnesses. So when we say faith, don't misunderstand us to think, well, we're just closing our eyes and believing some crazy things and hoping they're true and hoping that when we die one day, we'll be vindicated. 1 Corinthians 15 is a wonderful chapter to read because it says that if Jesus has not risen from the dead, our faith is in vain. We shouldn't be here this morning. Go do something else with your life. I shouldn't be a pastor because I'd be propagating a lie to you and telling you to put your faith in someone who's dead. But friend, if Jesus has risen, you must surrender your life to Him. He is worthy of worship. He's worthy of all of your life. You'll never find what your life is meant to be apart from Jesus. You'll never know God. You'll never know the God who created you. You'll never know forgiveness of sins against a holy God unless you turn and trust in Him. There's no one like Him. No one has died a death like His, and no one has risen from the dead like His. He is worthy of your glory. Consider all that Peter was an eyewitness to. He was personally chosen by Jesus. Peter and his brother Andrew fishing in the Sea of Galilee. Jesus called them to follow him and to be his disciples, saying, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And Peter got up and he left it all to follow Jesus. He was counted among this inner circle of Jesus' 12 disciples. Peter, James, and John, the three who were closest to Jesus, who heard the most and saw the most. If he were a fraud, they would have known it. Peter was counted amongst that inner circle. In fact, he was the first disciple of Jesus back in Matthew 16 to confess him as the Christ and not merely a Jewish rabbi. Peter saw Jesus walk on water. And then Peter got to do something that would be pretty cool if we were able to do. He was able to walk on water for a moment as he looked to Jesus. And just when it seemed that all was lost, I mean, Peter, he saw Jesus taken away to be killed. He ended up denying Jesus just as Jesus told him he would three times. And just when it seemed that all hope was lost, Jesus dead, buried in a tomb, Sunday morning came, And Peter hears Mary Magdalene crying out, he's risen from the dead. He had to run to see it for himself. Now, he wasn't as fast as John, so John beat him to the tomb. But Peter got to step into that tomb. He saw the stone rolled away at the tomb with his own eyes. With his own eyes, he examined Jesus was not there. He walked into that tomb. He saw the linen cloth used to wrap up the dead body of Jesus laying there folded, tomb empty. Peter saw, and he believed, he was amazed. And Jesus later appeared to Peter, spending a period of 40 days with him and the other disciples, training them. In Acts chapter 1, Peter was an eyewitness to the ascension of Jesus. He saw with his own eyes Jesus go up to heaven. He heard with his own ears the angel proclaiming, this Jesus will come back in the same way that you just saw him go up. Peter received hope in Jesus as he witnessed this living Savior. He gave the rest of his life to testifying and preaching the gospel of Jesus. He gave the rest of his life to preaching the resurrection of Christ, starting with this sermon here in Jerusalem on Pentecost. And consider why. Why else would Peter 
preach this sermon in Jerusalem unless it really happened. Again, the city that Jesus was crucified in, a dangerous place to come and preach about Jesus just about 50 days after he had been killed. Back when Jesus was arrested, Peter was a coward, denied Jesus three times. But here in Acts 2, he's a bold witness. What would happen at the end of the sermon? He didn't know 3,000 people were going to get saved. He was just preaching. It very well could have meant the end of his life, his death, just like Jesus. Why would he stand there and preach so boldly? Because he had been with the risen Lord Jesus. In the face of persecution and opposition and threats, he kept preaching the good news of Jesus, crucified and risen from the dead. And church tradition tells of Peter losing his life for this, being killed, crucified upside down on a cross, dying as a martyr. For this crowd gathered in Jerusalem, listening to Peter's sermon, being familiar with Jesus was not enough. They needed to believe and put their faith in the risen Lord Jesus. Now, earlier in the sermon, Peter held them responsible for crucifying Jesus, for rejecting Jesus. At the end of the sermon, he calls them to repent of that, to turn away from. That's what repent means, to turn away from that sin. Down in verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. On that day, about 3,000 responded with faith in Jesus. That this testimony that Jesus is alive, it, it brings great comfort and confidence to Christians. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this news, it should challenge you. Christianity, again, is not merely closing our eyes and choosing to believe something that we can't possibly know if it's true or not. That's not what it means to have faith in Jesus. That's not what it means to have hope in Jesus. Our faith, our hope based on facts, the witness of the Scripture, eyewitness testimony, we have good reason for what we believe. Why do you believe what you believe? You either believe this testimony of the Scriptures and Peter, or you believe the testimony of the Roman guards or something else. Like, oh, who knows what happened there? Who knows why Christians are still gathering thousands of years later proclaiming this truth? Well, you need to know this. As Christians this morning, we believe that when we die, we will live forever with God in heaven, not because we deserve it, but because God is so gracious and merciful and kind to provide a way for us to be forgiven. Jesus Christ, His death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins God raised him from the dead as proof, as evidence that what Jesus did on the cross was his finished work. Nothing needs to be added to it. It's not his work plus your good effort. It's not his work plus your best intentions. It's his work, period. His blood shed on the cross for you and that you put your faith in Jesus. The resurrection has transformed our lives as a church. The resurrection transformed the life of Peter and gave him hope. And it will do the same for you today if you've not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ. I hope you'll talk to someone who brought you today. Our pastors will be at the door afterwards. We'd love to talk with you more about what it would look like to trust in Jesus as your Savior on Easter Sunday. In Oakhurst Baptist Church, we see the pattern here in the Scriptures, come, see, tell. 
That should be our pattern. That we regularly are reminded of the death and resurrection of Jesus, His great love for us. Our faith is strengthened. Our confidence grows in Jesus. We grow as worshipers of Him, meaning our eyes are off ourselves more and more and on Jesus and His finished work and that we want to go and tell everyone around us about Jesus. This is good news that needs to get places. This is good news that needs to get to your family members who don't know Jesus. This is good news that needs to get to your neighbors and your friends and your classmates and your co-workers that don't need Jesus. And just as Peter was strengthened and emboldened by the resurrection of Jesus, may we be strengthened in our faith and in sharing that faith with others. And may we be strengthened with joy this morning that there is no greater joy than knowing this risen and reigning Jesus. And may we leave here asking God that we would know Christ more and give our lives more to making Him known. Let's bow and pray. Father, we pray that you'd fix our eyes on the hope that we've been given in Jesus, this sure and certain hope. And Lord, that as we fix our eyes on Him, that our attention that's far too often given to things that will not matter 10,000 years from now, things that ultimately don't matter in eternity, that our eyes would would be taken away from those things, that the glory of the world would, would fade around us, and that we would enjoy the glory of Christ more, that we would live for His glory more, and that we would speak and tell of His glory more and more to those around us. Lord, we ask that You would strengthen our faith by what we've heard this morning. We pray that You would increase our joy by what we've heard this morning. We pray that we'd be strengthened in hope as we look to this living hope found in Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.